unlocking cellular health for both healing and prevention of disease is what we are talking about on today's show. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host. Today is show 3.30 and I have the wonderful Dr. Bill Rawls, whose book I came across recently uh, as I was researching, you guessed it, cellular health. As I said, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, And I seem to be noticing a pattern with the doctors on the show, and that is A, that they are human beings who are not uh, impervious to disease, but B, often the integrative aspect of or broadening into holistic territories of their clinical practice is brought on because of a personal suffering, a personal crisis that they realized they did not have the tools in their toolkit as trained doctors to fix. And so it forces them out of the box. And this is not a story unlike many of you listening today. A lot of us move into thinking about how we can switch out products, upgrade our food, uh, improve the quality of air in our homes because we have some sort of a crisis and we need to think differently. And uh, I know for me that was absolutely the case with becoming antibiotic resistant uh, when it came to chronic tonsillitis. Uh, I had to find a different way to cure tonsillitis. And, and so the journey begins. And for Bill, that journey began with Lyme disease in his late 40s. So there he is plodding along, fourth generation family physician, doing all the right things uh, from a long line of doctors and boom, becomes so unwell and does not know how to fix it, nor do any of his colleagues. So that sends Bill on a personal journey of exploration. He discovers different approaches in Eastern medicine, herbal medicine, and uh, and then begins subsequent further training in herbal medicine uh, to then get to where he is today, which is to be helping people uh, with chronic illness and to help people with disease prevention once they're well. There's one thing to, you know, put all the Band-Aids on and slap on a, a medication that makes us feel good for a bit, but we always want to be looking at how we can achieve, of course, that cellular health, which then contributes to overall organism health, uh, human health, and uh, stops us from getting sick down the track. Uh, or at the very least, you know, we can't control the world, we can't control everything. And I always say this isn't to become bulletproof, but it's to give ourselves the best chance of thriving. And even then, if the shit hits the fan down the track, we are better equipped to bounce back from it uh, or to wade those waters uh, from a, a stronger position. So I'm going to hook into that conversation with Bill in a little second. Uh, We, of course, cannot do this show without our wonderful sponsors and our major sponsor, Oz Climate. Big shout out to them. If you are listening to this live, you are very lucky because for the month of May, they are doing a ridiculous 
ridiculous multiple unit buy uh, sale on their website, which is already crazy good value if you need dehumidifiers or air purifiers. Uh, but on top of that, we get the 10% off with the Lotox Life discount. So you would get uh, a huge, huge saving from using our 10% discount on top of the multi-bribe prices they have on their website. This one's unfortunately only for the Aussies, uh, but you head to ozclimate.com.au and uh, click on their dehumidifier or air purifier range. If you're one of our Lotox Club members, make sure you head onto the platform and listen to the Q&A we did with their lead technician to talk you through floor plans, space, what kind of units you need for what kind of climates, all that jazz. If you're not a Lotox Club member yet, I just worked out it was 13 cents a day. That's it, folks, $49 a year. And that lets you into our beautiful uh, Facebook community to have as a bit of a brains trust when you're workshopping things that you're swapping from and two uh, people even put up all sorts of questions for our wonderful naturopath Renee who checks in once a week and supports people's uh, health journeys as well as the building biologists we've had and we have in our group and architects and so forth uh, our Q&As with past show guests and leading industry low-tox experts are awesome uh, and uh, and we have a library of those in the archives when you join. So if that's something you're thinking about, you should head to lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab, join the club is the very first option on the drop down. The other sponsor I want to tell you about, I've had so many emails recently, actually since I had Daniel, the founder of Block Blue Light on the show, uh, which I think was in March, and everyone was like, um, so I know you guys often do a deal. Is he got, has he got one coming up? And I said, yes, it's in May. You'll just have to wait. And now it's May. So for the whole month of May, you have 15% off the entire Block Blue Light range. Uh, and, uh, your code is LOWTOXLIFE15. And if you are, uh, a good little worker be listening to this show live in the week that it's on. We actually have a giveaway running uh, with Block Blue Light that's worth $400. It's called the Ultimate Sleep Pack. And this is international, by the way. So Block Blue Light ships internationally, which means everyone listening gets this discount. My favorite type. Uh, so 15% off site-wide for the month of May. Life 15 is your code. And head to their Instagram to uh, comment and like their Instagram, uh, blockbluelight.com.au or just uh, search Instagram, you'll find them. Uh, and the sleep pack has the nightfall block blue light glasses for nighttime, uh, it has the screen time blue light glasses for daytime, has the 100% blackout sleep mask, which is honestly the best thing Ever, especially if you live in a city, even in an urban, uh, even in a suburban part of a city where there are still street lights and a whole bunch of atmospheric lights. It's amazing that mask. Uh, the No Blue Amber Book Light, which is fabulous for getting teens to start winding down in the evening who often tend to be a bit night owlish at that phase in their lives. At least we're giving them every chance to start getting sleepy a little bit earlier and get that valuable sleep while they grow. 
Uh, but we love also um, the sound blocking earplugs. <laughs> okay, specifically, I love the sound blocking earplugs. We have a neighbor that likes watching late night television, and I have a husband partial to a whiskey sometimes, which makes him snore. I hope he's not going to listen to this episode. Anywho, so enjoy um, going in for that giveaway. You're not in it. Uh, what is it? Oh gosh, what's the expression? Um, you can't win it if you're not in it. Oh, I just don't feel like that's rolling off the tongue very well. Anyway, head to their Instagram, doesn't matter where you are in the world, and enter that comp. Then check out their amazing range. I always sing uh, the praises of the Sweet Dreams light bulbs. That's all we have in our house. Um, They have a fantastic full-spectrum light bulb. And if you want to learn more about the light spectrum, please do go back and listen to the show I did with Daniel, the founder. He is a wealth of knowledge, so well-researched. He, before he actually left to work on Block Blue Light full-time, did uh, convinced his boss to do an experiment on changing the lighting in their office because people were, well, he was having headaches and insomnia, but everybody joined the experiment kind of involuntarily, really, once his boss said yes, and people noticed all sorts of benefits. So I actually share that, uh, make him share how he got that across the line so that anyone who might want to bring that to your workplace and reap the rewards and pitch it as a bit of a let's improve people's productivity and well-being in the office, uh, which is better for the company boss, um, then you might be inspired by Daniel's story back when he was still in a corporate setting. Uh, I loved that podcast and I love this podcast with Dr. Bill Rawls and I know you will too. Enjoy. Hello, Bill. How are you doing? Oh, great. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. And I'm so happy to have you on the show. You've written- Pleasure to be here epic book called Cellular Wellness Solution. And uh, it's a 500 plus page roller coaster through the human body and how to optimize health. And uh, while, uh, of course, I will be recommending that to, to everyone through our show notes, there are so many things I want to dig into today. And I, I think especially cellular wellness, cellular health, we know it's a thing, we know it's important, but a lot of people who maybe skip biology at school or uh, who um, who have complex issues and in our system you often end up with one health professional focused on one organ, uh, we often miss that cellular health importance. So I want to ask you first up, it became important to you at an interesting time in your life when everything's fine and dandy, you're a fourth generation physician doing exactly what all the people in your family expected of you to do. And that was going very well until you became sick with Lyme disease. Uh, I want to ask you what that experience did to change the direct, the, the trajectory, if you like, of the way you supported patients. Because it sounds like it was quite a moment. Yeah. Well, first of all, chronic Lyme disease isn't what everyone thinks it is. I don't think of chronic Lyme disease the same way that most people do. But in the way that I understand chronic Lyme disease, that opened up a gateway for me to understand fundamental causes of all chronic illnesses. So it's a model for every for understanding everything. 
And that cellular wellness concept, and by the way, the book is 500 pages, that which might sound intimidating, but it's like four books. Yeah, so, that's how it, I felt. It was a open a section way. and choose so, your own you know, adventure. So what I try to do is simplify things. And, and when you take things down to the cellular level, you simplify everything, aging, illness, everything is simplified. But my story, um, it was... Uh, you know, I went to medical school. Um, and even at that time, you know, the idea of doing conventional medical therapy, uh, drug therapies in the hospital and that sort of thing, wasn't that attracted to, to me because a lot of the patients didn't get well. And I was attracted to obstetrics and gynecology because it was a younger, well population. The interventions really made a difference and delivering a baby was just really cool. But at that time, it's changed a lot, but at that time in history, that meant taking call in the hospital, um, you know, being responsible for patients in labor in the hospital every second to third day and every second to third weekend. And for me, that typically meant not getting sleep. Um, so if you can imagine not being able to get a good night's sleep, four hours, sometimes not at all every second or third night for your whole life for 15 years. And then just the, the stress of balancing a busy practice, taking this call, you know, being a good family person and being active in the community, it really just took its toll. And I didn't have time to eat well. I didn't have time, you know, about the only thing I did consistently was exercise. And even that was intermittent because I was working so much. And um, so my 30s, I could do it. You know, it's like, yeah, I can do this. I don't need sleep. What, what's sleep for? <laughs> and then as I got into my late 40s, things started breaking down. My body started breaking down. And I developed all these symptoms, um, heart symptoms. My joints were falling apart, brain symptoms, weird neurological things, just scores of things. Um and first I identified with fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue because I had had all these evaluations with these physicians and couldn't find anything. So it's kind of like, okay, that's that's what's left over. <laughs> you know, When they can't find anything else, you get stuck with that. Nobody wants that diagnosis. So like so many people with fibromyalgia, it's like, what else could there be? And I Yeah, guess, and what the heck do we do uh, now? What, what could cause this kind of havoc inside my body? And the only thing that I knew of was some kind of microbe, a bacteria, a virus, something. It had to be. So I was like looking for the thing and eventually got a positive test for Lyme disease and then thought, because everybody does that. It's like, if I can get a positive test for Lyme disease, then I can take antibiotics and I'll get well but they don't because chronic Lyme disease isn't the same thing as acute Lyme disease. And antibiotics actually made me sicker by default because I was desperate by then I had had to leave my practice. Um, and just to generate an revenue screen, I started a small primary care practice that I could control my hours so I could actually work. And, um, I, started looking for things and tried various different kinds of things and happened upon a book that, you know, was talking about this herbal protocol for Lyme disease. And it was like, okay, 
yeah, I, I can do this. I can afford it. <laughs> um, and it's not going to require me chasing doctors all around the country. So, but my expectations were low, you know, it's like herbs, what are they going to do? Um, <laughs> I remember that too. That's not medicine though. Like how's it making right. me better? Yeah. And I started getting better and I started getting better and better and better. And it was, a, you know, my total recovery was about a five year period, but, and it was up and down because I, you know, I'd take the herbs a while and stop them and then restart them and, you know, and and finally, it was just like, I do so much better on these herbs. I'm just going to continue taking them. And I just kept getting better. And I've now been taking herbs continually for 15 years. And now looking back on it, I understand chronic Lyme disease very different. It's differently. It's, you know, when you look at chronic Lyme disease, it's not an infection with a microbe that's making you sick. And the herbs, if the antimicrobial properties of the herbs are suppressing microbes, but not just that one microbe, and it's doing a whole lot more in your body. So I've spent the past 15 years really figuring out what happened and how we can apply that to so many other things and why it is so remarkably important. I mean, we're, you know, when you look at healing thing, things that we can do to promote healing we're overlooking one of the most important things we can do. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and from a nutrition perspective, we're always told add the fresh herbs. They have a huge amount of concentrated nutrition. Um, so there's an infantile understanding at a basic level, but I think the deeper understanding is still waiting to really be um, captured and and you do it so beautifully in the book and I just want to ask because I know people will ask from the chronic illness slash Lyme communities who do listen to the show if you could share a couple of the herbs that were really pivotal for you uh in that recovery process for that particular diagnosis all right yeah sure um there are many herbs out there with antimicrobial properties. In fact, all plants have antimicrobial properties. All living organisms have to have a defense system against microbes. And what plants use is a chemical defense system. So when we take an herb, we're basically taking that plant's chemical defense system, which is very different than an antibiotic. So antibiotics either come from a bacteria, a fungus, or a plant. But it's not, you know, so we're going to that organism to borrow from it, borrow its defense systems. But we're not taking the whole system. We're just taking one random chemical, and then we potentiate it and make it a random killer. Um, and that has value in acute, fast-moving infections like pneumonia. But anything chronic, it's not, it, you're not going to get the same effect. So when you take an herb, you're getting the plant's entire chemical defense system, and there's a certain intelligence there. And the value of that is, like, unlike antibiotics that kill all the normal flora in your body, herbs don't do that. They spare, they, they hit the pathogens and they spare the normal flora which is really important. And that makes sense. You know, the plant wants to protect its friendly bacteria. 
And I, you know, I, I actually found a study and quoted that in the book that, um, you know, they, they've documented that. And that's why I could get away with taking all of these herbs for so many years, because they actually made my gut better instead of worse, like antibiotics. So it's a different kind of thing. So some of our top herbs that I really like, um, Japanese knotweed usually heads up the list. Um, that's an invasive worldwide. I'm sure it grows in, in, in Australia. Yeah, um, one man's trash is another man's treasure kind of situation. Yeah, it's mm. a great source of resveratrol, what we find in grapes. But it's actually a higher concentration. Resveratrol has antimicrobial properties, but it has a whole range of other chemicals too. Um, so it is effective against Borrelia. Um, cat's claw from the Amazon is an excellent herb for Lyme disease. Uh, Chinese skullcap is one of my favorites because it's a wonderful immune modulator and synergist. Um, and I typically add garlic, andrographis, and then some immune modulating mushrooms like reishi and cordyceps and, and, um, another herb called Romania. So there's a lot of herbs that we use. The herbs are complementary. So when you look at a plant, what you're getting is the plant's ability to deal with the stress factors in its natural environment, whatever microbes are there. So if you're using different herbs from different places, you get this overlapping synergy, which is really wonderful. So those herbs, um, actually several of them were uh, featured in a study at Johns Hopkins University in 2020 that they took the herbs and to see if they would actually kill Borrelia. And this was a test tube study because they wanted to, to, to eliminate any effects that the herbs might have on the, uh, the immune system. And they found that some of the herbs that I just mentioned actually killed Borrelia, the Lyme disease microbe, better than doxycycline and, and one of the cephalosporin antibiotics, better. Um, interestingly though, they did a series of other studies. They looked at Bartonella, one that's a common co-infection and Babesia, which is actually a protozoa. The same herbs had activity there too. And when we started hearing about COVID around about March of 2020, and they were saying, well, we don't have vaccines. We don't have drugs. Good luck. I started looking for herbs that might have value. And interestingly, there was a lot of work done with the previous SARS epidemics back in the 2000s to look and see if there were herbs that might have activity against SARS viruses. So there was some good research done. Really interesting. Some of the top ones, Chinese skullcap, Japanese knotweed, ginger, andrographis, a lot of things we use for Lyme disease. So that just shows you the range that these things have. It's pretty remarkable. It is very remarkable. I agree. Um, now, I know you produce supplements as well. And part of that is obviously sourcing and uh, working with different suppliers and, and getting that traceability, which, you know, feels like um, quite often we see uh, like some article about how the uh, there was only like 50% rosemary in that dried rosemary mix that you got from the supermarket or, the, you know, and this happens in, in supplement land as well um, with randomized testing. How do you um, 
from both from an environmental perspective as well, because we don't want to over-harvest really rare things. I know that's an issue in the essential oils industry. How do you work on that aspect of production? Yeah, it, it's all about testing. So there's no way that one company can grow or produce all of its own herbs. And and it's just, you know, you know, we have a company in North Carolina that originally tried and they do a nice job with a few herbs, but you just can't grow everything in one place. So you do have to use worldwide suppliers and there are different grades of herbs that you can get. Um, so if you are willing to pay, you can get an herb that comes with a certificate of analysis. And what that is, is they take whatever batch you've purchased, and this is an independent study from a third party that they've verified the species, they've verified the concentration of key phytochemicals, that it doesn't have bacterial and, and heavy metal and other uh, contaminants. Like contaminants, yeah. Mm. Um, so, so that's really important. Mm, super important. But, but we don't find that to be always completely accurate. So we do a second step that we actually get a sample of that batch of herb and we actually have it independently tested by another lab to make sure that certificate of analysis was accurate. Keeping them honest. And then we do a third <laughs> level of testing in the manufacturing process to make sure that it is being mixed properly, that these herbs are coming together in the right ratios that they should be. So it's levels of testing, and that's really important. And what I can tell you is uh, some companies do that, but a lot of companies don't. A lot of companies are obviously buying uh, herbal extracts that don't come with a certificate of analysis, and they're not doing any testing. Um, it just increases your profit margin to do that. And there are lower concentrations. Um, recently, I had uh, our supply chain manager do an equivalency. You know, I, I said, take one of our capsules, which are using high-grade standardized extracts, and tell me how many capsules it would be if you took average-grade ingredients and made this same product what would it take to equal that one capsule? And I was thinking maybe three or four capsules. I knew our capsules were potent, but it was a surprise. It was 10 capsules. Wow. And, yeah. and people so, really do need to interview and research any supplement company they're going to be buying from, especially if they're not going through a practitioner who's done that vetting for them yeah. to get practitioner grade. It's quality. hard because everybody makes claims of quality, but they don't, you know, people don't understand how to judge that. So I put a lot of content in the book to help people look for the uh, quality supplements to be able to judge quality. And part of that is just finding a good company to work with that, you know, they're following that kind of standard. Absolutely. And we did a whole podcast on supplement quality as well, which I'll pop in the show notes. Um, okay, so I would love to ask you then, you start, you discover these herbs in your own personal journey. That's quite a bridge to then take it into a practice setting. How did that unfold for you as a doctor? Um, you know, I was doing kind of a functional medicine practice before that was really a thing. 
And here I was doing it under insurance, but so it was hard. Yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, it's hard to get really paid for that, but I believed in it. So I, I kept doing it um, and started just recommending herbs, eventually had things in my office that were available so I could control the quality and the type of products that people were getting. Um, but uh, it just evolved. I mean, it's just like, it was the right thing to do. So I did it. And I've always been a person to follow my intuition. And it's like when I had the choice to go find Lyme doctors in the United States and things like that, my intuition said, don't go there. That's not the right thing. Um, your job, the reason this is happening to you is because you, you you need to learn something here. Um and I kind of bought into that. And it was like, yeah, okay, this isn't fun, but teach me stuff. Um, and I just kept learning. And, you know, one of the advantages, I was in a relatively small community and a small practice. And you know, the real blessing was that we have this resource by the NIH called PubMed that, you know, you can get on PubMed and find studies for everything, anything. And I just started researching everything, theorizing possibilities, you know, asking, what if, how can this be, you know, how, let's explain this and working through and then finding the science to find out if that was accurate or not. And I've just been doing that for a decade and a half. And I've just come to very, very different conclusions than most, uh, virtually all conventional doctors, a lot of functional and integrative doctors. So not necessarily always on the same page there either. And it boils down to it. It's, it's just not quite as complicated as everybody's making it out to be. Yeah. yeah I almost feel like all the band-aids over all the things that are wrong in medicine, um, and are counterproductive to supporting people's health. It's like we've gotten to this super complicated place and it's getting even more complicated because you've then got to productize everything and protocol everything to then to then have your way be better than the other person's way. And, and then you just end up with really confused people half trying a million things. It's and it's really staying unwell. It's it's, mm. it's not just here in the United States, it's Oh, it's everywhere. Yeah. And you know, and it's uh so I'm trying to do my little part to re-educate people and understand that, you know, there's 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 a it, it's not quite so hard. And you know, wellness is more of a choice than people realize. Mm, so well put. So let's take it to basics then and look at cellular health. What right. is it? That simplifies everything. And I can explain, we, we can talk about any subject, and I can frame it with that and talk about it in a way that it's, it's explainable. So the mistake we make in conventional medicine is that we look at the body as a whole kind of, and we think about it like it's a car, you know, you know, it's often here, well, we just need to look under the hood and see what's going on in there. So we treat the heart like a unit and we have cardiologists and the lungs like a unit and we have lung doctors and we have neurologists. We have all these compartments and a lot of times none of the compartments really talk to each other. So it's all diced up and made complicated. 
And our primary therapy for chronic illness is medical therapies. And what medical therapies do is artificially block manifestations of illness. So they are poisoning enzymes, affecting neuro, neuro, neurotransmitter pathways, you know, and doing things in the body to artificially block symptoms to slow progression of illness. And in early stages of illness, that can be really important. So we do do a very good job at acute intervention. You know, you come in with a heart attack or a broken leg or, you know, it's something that's, we do a great job with that. But when you apply those acute interventional tools to chronic illness, it just doesn't work as well. So I think that's, that's a, a real issue. And so, you know, we always start with a diagnosis, right? So it's like, what are your symptoms? We get some lab work, other diagnostic protocols. Oh yeah, we make lots of money on diagnostic protocols. Um, we can do that. We can do lots of those and we're going to find your diagnosis. But what I found with a lot of people is they don't really get a firm diagnosis. We think you might have so-and-so, you know, I went through this thing of thought it could have MS. I thought it could have Parkinson's, but I had oh, gosh, heart yes. issues yeah. and then I had joint issues and everybody was treating this separately. You know, had to see a neurologist, had to see a rheumatologist, had to see a cardiologist, you know, and none of them really helped me. I and know. Like, I went through the no, same thing not, with, um, with mold. I yeah. went through the exact so, same thing. So it's, it, it's, you know, it's like, you're not really sick enough to get a diagnosis. We're going to call you fibromyalgia. Good luck. Um, so I started asking the question, what causes it? What causes illness? And when you start asking that question, so that was early on. So I was looking at, well, you know, food is really important. Toxins that we're exposed to like mold or all the toxins in the environment. Exercise is important. Sleep is important. Found out that the hard way. And then this microbe factor that I wasn't quite sure about at that time. So, you know, I, I started looking at all these potential causes of disease, started researching it, and there was a lot of research that supported this theory. And so I was applying these principles to myself, but I was also applying them to um, my patients. So everything I learned, you know, I'd write things down, I created these handouts, I started, you know, put things on a CD for people to take home and read. And I had people following this stuff, you know, um, changing their diet, doing all these things and taking the herbs, not just people with chronic Lyme disease, anybody who wanted to change their health. And I had some great responses. Um, one of the big ones was I had a patient with MS who was not responding to other therapies who came in in a wheelchair. And she said, yeah, what do I got to lose? I'll try this stuff. Um, within six weeks, she was walking with a cane. It was pretty powerful. And I saw these responses and I was getting better. So then I started digging in and it took me years to really come to where I am now. In fact, every six months, I seem to be at a higher level of understanding this, but I finally took it down to the cellular level because this is logical. It makes sense. So your body is made of cells. Absolutely everything that happens in your body is a function of cells. 
whether that's thyroid hormone being produced, your heart beating, brain impulses firing, bones and, and joints being knitted back together after an injury, it's all done by cells. So cells are critical. That's what makes us happen. So the integrity of our body is a function of the integrity, our, integrity of our cells. If we feel well, it's because all our cells are healthy and they're all working in synchrony. If you feel bad, if you have a symptom, that means your cells have been weakened and stressed. And this typically the symptom points to the cells being stressed. You have heart symptoms, that's heart cells. You have brain symptoms, that's brain cells. So you apply those things of causes to cell. Pick any one cell in your body. All cells need five basic things. They need the right nutrients. And that can vary. It's like heart cells need mainly fat. Thyroid cells need iodine to produce thyroid hormone. But we all need, you know, they all need a range of nutrients and they suffer if they're not getting them. They need a clean environment. So mycotoxins, natural toxins, or all the petrochemicals and all the chemicals we are exposed to, those things inhibit cellular function so it weakens our cells. They don't work as well. Cells need good blood flow. This is why we need to get out and move because it increases blood and that delivers nutrients but carries waste away from, from our cells. So we need good, good blood flow. We need that regularly. Cells need downtime. So sleep is really important. That's when our cells recover. Now, some cells like heart cells, they rest in between the beats. But most of our cells need recovery time, especially our brain cells. They need downtime to recover from working hard all day. So sleep is extremely valuable. So those are the big ones. So if you're eating a bad diet, you're exposed to all kinds of toxic substances. You don't get sleep. You don't exercise properly. That weakens your cells, not some cells, all of your cells. And that makes them vulnerable to category number five, which is microbes. And our cells are, you know, the arch enemy is microbes. Um, and we give a lot of attention to really bad things that are very visible, like uh, uh, Ebola virus, most recently COVID, AIDS. But those are relatively uncommon compared to the majority of the microbes that we're exposed to. So we're exposed to a lot of stuff through our lifetime. So we, we can go deeper with, with the microbe thing, if you like. Mm, I'd love to, because, of course, there are so many wonderful microbes that help us function optimally as well. Uh, and so um, I'm curious to see how you define that balance and um, and in the herbal world, perhaps, like how we make sure we're not killing the bad guys like we've done traditionally with antibiotics. Right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Sorry, killing the good guys, my bad. Yeah. Mm. So microbes, pathogens, the bad microbes. <laughs> how do they hurt you? Mm. What do they do to you? What do they want from you? Mm. Food. They got to eat. That's mm. it. So where's the food? from either our own uh, body's uh, makeup or from what food we eat. Um, correct. That's right. So some microbes, like the ones in our gut, 
live off of food material that we haven't eaten or that we've eaten. And bacteria on our skin live off of oils on the skin. So there aren't as many, um, not as much food. So all living things are food for something else. All, every part of us, our cells very specifically are food for microbes. And that's what they want. That's the harm they do is damaging our cells. So we have four levels of defense against microbes. So the first level of defense is barriers. So we have the skin that holds moisture in, keeps microbes out. We have the lining of our nasal passageways, the linings of our sinuses, the linings of our lungs. Now that's a more vulnerable barrier. Um, and, you know, and so those barriers and the lining of our gut is a barrier to keep those bacteria in where the food material is and not in our tissues because all foods are potential, all cells are potential food for bacteria. So we want to keep them confined. But it turns out those barriers leak a lot and things get across. So anytime anyone has gotten bitten by an insect, tick, mosquito, or anything else that bites and draws blood, bacteria and other microbes have entered your system every single time. So this thing with Lyme disease, we're just starting to understand it. You know, we identified this one microbe called Borrelia 50 some years ago. And now we have all of these co-infections that come along with it. Um, but we're just scratching the surface. One tick species has been found to, to carry a potential 237 different families of bacteria. So there's a lot of things that we, there are probably pathogens that we just don't know about yet. We just don't have knowledge of them. So tick bites, but respiratory infections and, you know, cat scratches, dog snips, um, you know, playing with your dog and just getting scratched and intimate contact with other people and things that we eat, things get in our body and they're all wanting to cross the barriers. And it turns out that even our gut bacteria are constantly leaking from the gut in a slow trickle from the gut, from the sinuses, from our gums, they're entering our bloodstream. So it looks like our bloodstream is more like a freeway and it's the freeway to all the cells in the body. So that's what all microbes want. So we tend to classify a microbe by the way it crosses a barrier, tick-borne microbes, respiratory infections. And it's like we get a lot of symptoms with a respiratory infection. That's not what the microbe wants. That's not what SARS virus wants. It wants to get to the bloodstream. That's what they all want. And it's, you know, but it's having a confrontation with the immune system to get to the bloodstream or into the bloodstream. So those symptoms of our initial infection are the confrontation between the microbe when it hits the bloodstream and the immune system. So what happens with that confrontation depends on several factors. The load of microbes, if you get lots of different microbes all at one time, like with the tick bite, but it has a lot more to do with the immune system than it does the microbes. Ebola virus is really, really bad because humans have never been exposed to it. So our, we don't have any built-in immunity. 
So the mortality is 60% because when hit, hit hits the bloodstream, there's nothing to stop it. COVID, we have a lot of immunity to other coronaviruses. So the mortality was only like 1%, not nearly as bad as Ebola. Tick-borne microbes, acute Lyme disease doesn't kill people. And, and when you think about it, humans have been being bitten by ticks since the beginning of time. So it turns out that most of the microbes that we are exposed to are low-grade pathogens. They have a low potential to cause acute illness and sickness. But that doesn't mean we get rid of them. And this mm. is... And this is... Is this where the chronic aspect of this feeling is gonna get, yep, I'm getting ready mm. to kind of do the punchline <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, so the deal is that every time you get anything, anytime something enters your body, crosses the gut, tick bite, cat scratch, put things in your mouth when you're a kid for your whole life. And possibly even when you were still in your mother's womb, blood microbes are making their way to the bloodstream. And the immune system, that's your second level of defense, does a pretty good job of managing those, but some of them make it to your tissues. And when they do, they invade your cells. Viruses, bacteria, protozoa, like toxoplasma and babesia, there's so many things out there. Really, um, hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of different microbes that are possibilities. So if your cells are healthy, these things invade your cells and your cells, that's your third level of defense. Your cells do have some ability to either kill or what we're finding happens a lot of the time is the microbes go dormant. And that's a survival mechanism. I was reading a paper the other day that 60% of the total biomass of microbes on earth are, are in a dormant state. So it's a survival mechanism that most my, most all microbes have. If the conditions are harsh and threatening or there's no food, you just go dormant and wait it out. So they're in our cells. Our cells keep uh, right on function. And then so we're waiting imagine, for that person to have a super stressful divorce or um, a couple of other infections that knock them sideways or a bit of mold exposure and then boom. That's it. So if you can imagine your brain. So we actually, there's studies showing we have a microbiome of the brain, but these things are in your brain, your heart, your all of the tissues, your liver, everywhere. And they're dormant, but you have those kinds of stresses and they reactivate. So it's not just Borrelia from Lyme disease. It's not, it's, it's everything you've ever been exposed to starts emerging. And at that point, your immune system starts working against you because it's looking at your tissues and going, oh man, there's all these microbes emerging from the cells and it starts attacking those cells. And that's what autoimmune illness is. So there's an autoimmune component of every chronic illness. So when you look at this, we all pick up different microbes. We have different genetics. We have different cellular stresses that come together, but you can use that model to explain every chronic illness, every single, there's always a microbe component. And we're starting to see that now, um, even cancers, you know, there's mechanisms showing that, you know, bacteria probably present 
may be present in all cancers, but at least right now we've defined 20% that are definite, but I think a whole lot more. Um, so same scenario. So it gets back to cellular health. You know, you want to keep your cells healthy and your microbes dormant. And, and so we have so many different illnesses because we're all exposed to different microbes and different microbes invade different cells. So we have this different spectrum. Each of us do. Mm. And but, uh, Bill, do you see um, fungal pathogens as uh, different or they lay dormant the same way microbes do or do we get affected by fungi in a negative way because of the microbes in our cells that are dormant and that's actually yeah. what's being set off, not necessarily right. the fungus? Yeah. Bunga. Or is it the bacteria that are one of the um, right. the components of the mold spores? Because we do know that to be the case now as right. well. You know, I think mold is a big deal. Um, mm. So you we do have fungal species that are single cellular. They're microorganisms and they can end up inside of our cells. And, you know, the other thing that we, here on the learning curve of where we are, we don't completely understand all of this. And there's suggestions that some of these dorm dormant microbes may be actually symbiotic, that our cells need them. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we need to learn, but it's really changing our understanding of chronic illness completely. And, and so, so, but what you're talking about are funguses that grow like in your bathroom and things like that. Um, defending themselves against bacteria, other funguses. So they put out mycotoxins. That's the purpose of mycotoxins. So the mycotoxins are toxic to us. So it's not, you know, always the fungus that's entering us. It's the mycotoxins and the mycotoxins are toxic to all living things, including our cells. So they can make us sick. Um, I think it's more of a problem than it has been in past, uh, hum in our human past, though, for two reasons. I think one, uh, we're living in tightly contained houses that can that hold in moisture and heat, so we're more apt to grow, grow mold inside. And two, we're exposed to a lot of other petrochemicals. You know, we're exposed to um, you know plastic residues and things coming out of exhaust pipes of cars, and there are just so many chemicals associated with plastics and pesticides and everything else. I think that is weakening our cellular makeup more than we recognize, and it's making us more susceptible to natural toxins like mycotoxins. Mm, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a combination of factors in uh, the modern way that we live and um, and what we're exposed to, no doubt. Um, and so you you say different cells in different parts of the body require different things to thrive and, and work their best for that particular part of the body. But you also mentioned that there were overlaps, um, the hydration, the blood flow. Can you recap those fundamental overlaps so that we really have people remembering what we need to focus on above all else? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's, Typically, when I go through a wellness consult with someone, I'm going through these particular areas and looking at their diet and that sort of thing. Um, so start with food. My primary food rules and, and 
And this is open to a lot of different kinds of diets. I've just looked and said, okay, what's the core that we need? And you're probably already doing these things or would agree with them. So the first thing is eat whole foods, eat a wide variety of whole foods. Whole foods are whole cells, right? An apple is made of cells, a piece of salmon or a piece of broccoli. It's made of cells. And so even though apple has a lot of carbohydrate in it, that carbohydrate is contained inside cells. So when you eat an apple, you're getting the whole cell and all the nutrients. So the cell is made of vitamins, nutrients, amino acids, all of these things. So when you eat a whole food, you're getting this wide spectrum of nourishment. So even though your cells may have different needs, if you're eating whole food sources, you're going to very likely get all of that wide spectrum of things that the different cells in your body need. So it makes it easy. Just eat whole foods, eat a diversity of food. Now, if you go back to our ancient foraging past, humans ate like 500 different plants routinely. Now we're eating like a couple of dozen at the most. So a lot of diversity. Um, my One of my guiding principles for myself is eat more vegetables than anything else. Not fruit and vegetables, vegetables. And I'm kind of, I'm open with that definition, like zucchini squash is technically a fruit. Yeah, 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 yeah. My 13-year-old son to is, just, you know, my, pin you down for the things that are not technically right. so, a vegetable, mom. Yeah, But, you know, I think most people know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then kind of divide everything else up for what works for you, um, you know, and it's, uh, I, you know, so I eat meat. Some people don't eat meat. You can still get good protein sources. Uh, you can have grains, but I modify that with my third rule, which is I try to keep my total carbohydrates down below 150 grams a day. Um, that's not ketogenic. I think your brain needs a little glucose. You feel better when you get some glucose, but most people are killing themselves with carbohydrate. So when you look at flour that's extracted from seeds, that's not a whole food source, and it's loaded with a lot more carbohydrate than you need. You can get away with a little of it every now and then, but, you know, so if you keep it under that 150 gram level for your total carbohydrate. And it's not hard to figure out, you know, bananas, 27 grams and apples, 25 grams, a cup of blueberries is about 24 grams. So, you know, you can look at the foods, a cup of sweet potatoes, about 25 grams. So you can look at what you're eating in a day and, you know, you just keep track of it for a while. And then you kind of know, you don't have to like take a list out every day. Um, and so I kind of divide it up, but it's like I developed a lot of food sensitivities, so I don't do as well with nuts. Um, and so I don't eat that much in the way of nuts and beans as some people might that I think are fine. Um, I can eat lentils and some beans. Uh, rice is generally a to well-tolerated grain for everyone, wheat and corn less so. And the fourth thing is intermittent fasting, um, trying to cut that eating window down to uh, eight hours or less and allowing 16 hours to basically process. But intermittent fasting also optimizes autophagy. 
So autophagy is a process by which cells basically restore themselves. Um, and 16 hours of fasting maximizes autophagy. Anything more than 16 hours, the cell starts cannibalizing its own parts to generate energy. So it it uh, so 16 hours seems to be the magic number. Um, autophagy is also the process by which cells expel invasive microbes. So optimizing autophagy is really important. So that's diet, probably very much along. You know, I would suspect that things fit in with what you're doing pretty well. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. But I was going to say there, um, from what we've talked about with the kind of intersection of around the 40s where that microbial load seems to tip if you then factor in a stressful event or which, I mean, who doesn't, who makes it through their 40s without a few stressful events? I don't know anyone. Um, but what I found interesting about then mentioning autophagy and intermittent fasting is, is it probably wise to then make that a 40 plus thing to look at rather than in say your reproductive years where um, it's probably healthier to be maybe making that window 10 to 12 um, yeah, that, that's 16. a good point. And I, you know, I think that's, um, the, yeah, I always tell people when I give them those guidelines, make it work for you, make yeah. it work for your particular situation. And yes, yeah, certainly pregnancy and other times. Or um, adrenal fatigue, like, you know, there are yeah, a couple of yeah, things so, where you so think. So there oh. are some things that mm. certainly, but just as a general guideline, that's a great place to start. You know, that kind of mm. gets you in the ballpark of, of what you should be doing and thinking about for cellular health. So. Exactly. And I think, you know, it, it, it at the very least makes you think twice about reaching for the chocolate at 10 p.m. at night. Like after dinner, just don't eat. That's it. You're done. Yeah. Mm. You know, I I had just, you know, by busy lifestyle, um, poor nutritional information at the time. I had developed hiatal hernia and reflux and all of these things. And you know, I changed those more than a decade ago and all those symptoms just totally went away and they've never been back. Hmm. And it's, um, yeah, so those things matter. Massive, massive difference. Fantastic. Okay, so food, done, tick. All right, environment, next. Um, toxins, you know, when we look at toxic substances, they basically interfere with cellular processes, whether you're talking about mycotoxins from mold or uh, petrochemicals and that sort of thing. And most of our, you know, our toxic world, our, our world has become very toxic, mainly from petroleum and coal use. And if you look at these, I mean, petroleum came from algae in the ocean, coal came from um, from plant matter that was uh, uh, compressed on earth. And those things have been around for millions of years. If you went back and ate the algae and ate the plant matter, it would actually be healthy for you. But what happened was those millions of years of pressure underneath the earth have distorted those organic chemicals into a form that isn't compatible with life anymore. So they basically poison cellular functions. And they're just everywhere. There's way, way, way too much of it because we've just overused it. And in coal, you've got heavy metals that in, impregnated into the coal. Um, so when we use, when we burn coal, 
it uh, spews out not only all these toxic organic chemicals, but also heavy metals like mercury and cadmium. And it ends up being incorporated into life. Um, so, so, you know, when you hear about fish out in the ocean, having mercury, it comes from coal. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't often make that link, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. 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 So, you know, doing something about it, um, toxic substances can get in your body through air, what you breathe through what you eat or drink and through skin. So, um, water is pretty easy. Filter your water, uh, organic food that's more available than ever before. And just eating whole foods is a step in the right direction. Um, and, and that sorts out the coal issue as well, because you're ditching all of that soft plastic packaging, which also then addresses hormone disruption sources. I mean, it is literally one of the best multifactorial changes you can make in terms of benefit to you and the planet. Yep. Yep. And then air, um, you know, just uh, having your house evaluated for mold, that sort of thing. Um, and we'll get, we won't go into that deeply, but it is an issue for a lot of people, especially who live in moist places. But there are things like you get, that you can do uh, as far as, you know, putting dehumidifiers in places like basements and crawl spaces and different things to just pull the moisture out of the house as much as you can and being smart about water use in the bathroom and other places um, you know, I, we built an outside shower here and for nine months out of the year, I shower out there. Mm. <laughs> so I don't bring any water into the house, you know? So, um, part of well, there used to be a lot less house problems but... when we had outhouses, when our pipes were external, not inside walls. You know, there are so many building method changes that we've made that have caused, that have contributed to the issues. Yep. So good air filters and just being smart about that and where you live, you know, all of those things contribute to, to a clean lifestyle. Um, I, I'm fortunate here. I mean, I live on a marsh uh, right near the ocean and I'm surrounded by trees. So my air is great all the time. And, uh, you know, we've done all the things that we need to in our home, but um, not everybody else is so lucky. So just, so the big part of the mold problem is just eliminating it, the source of it. That is more important than anything else. And otherwise, your body will gradually purge those mycotoxins. Wow. Okay. And so the last thing I wanted to then ask you about is the fact that cells are different and need different things in different parts of the body. And cardiovascular disease I think I'd love to focus on for our last little bit because it is epidemic. It is killing far too many people. And there are there are such good things we can do to not have uh, heart problems uh, creep up in the first place, but also that we can do to manage after events and, and a healing process. What do you believe in the, the herbal world? Um that you've seen make the biggest difference to heart health? You know, I, th I think it's a composite, like so many things, you know, and that's the, that's the third category on my list, blood flow. And it's, it's just getting out and walking um, every day is one of the best things you can do for your cardiovascular system. 
Um, low intensity exercise. If you look at our ancient ancestors, they did low intensity exercise all day long. Um, and we really need that. And that's something that's very missing in our world. So top of the list is moving. And that keeps that blood flow going. Um, when you're not moving, things get stagnant. Um, and if you're eating the wrong foods, so we talk about food, it's getting back to whole foods, vegetables, um, cutting that carbohydrate count down. Um, but also, you know, what you're eating, um, the medical system labels cholesterol as the primary offender, right? So, and mainly that's just because that's something they can treat. They can do drugs for that, right? You need a bad guy so you can mitigate it. Yeah. Well, you need something you can fix and they can fix cholesterol. But the real problem is blood viscosity more than anything else. That's the problem. Um, viscosity is thickness. So our blood is thick like a milkshake, not like a glass of water. And when you push viscous blood, thick blood through tortuous vessels where the blood is moving really fast, it causes friction on any of those little turns. So plaques tend to, tend to form where that vessels are curved or, or tortuous. So high flow, flow vessels like heart and carotid arteries are more susceptible to have that. Um, so when you move thick blood through vessels, it creates friction. And that can, that, you know, very, it, it's basically like it, it creates a rug burn inside your vessel, right? And the body tries to heal that by making a scab, which makes it thicker and causes more friction. And then everything gets stuck in it and the body tries to heal it. White blood cells get embedded, fibrin gets embedded, bacteria get embedded, and it becomes kind of like a biofilm right there in your vessels. So it builds on itself and the more narrow it gets, the more friction, the worse it gets. So reducing friction is really important in the vascular system. So things that contribute to friction, um, cholesterol is one of them. Um, and everybody has the impression that it's their diet that they're getting the cholesterol. And actually the body uses cholesterol. It's a really important substance. There's a lot of our hormones come from cholesterol. We need it for so many purposes. So 75% of the cholesterol in the body is, is made by the body. Only about 25% comes from dietary. Very recently, the FDA in this country, finally, after many people campaigning, has taken down eggs as an offending food for heart health except in people who have hereditary hypercholesterol anemia, but that's only like one in 500 people, right? So, um, so, so you know, the, the, that blood viscosity is a big deal. So lots of cholesterol. Um, and what that comes from is carbohydrate. When you eat carbohydrate, then you can use your fat, turn, your liver turns it into fat. You have to move that fat to your fat cells. So you do that with uh, by making a lipoprotein particle that has cholesterol to stabilize it. And you move that fat through, that increases viscosity. So if you're eating a lot of carbs, that does it. And then when, that, when, when it disgorges the fat in the fat cell, you get this little ball of cholesterol and residual fat called an LDL particle. 
and they get stuck in plaques really easily. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. Saturated fat doesn't raise your cholesterol, but it makes your blood thick. So thick and bloat. Too many red blood cells. More men have heart attacks for most of their lives because their blood's thick. Um, women, they get thicker blood after they go through menopause. They, they catch up with men. So blood thickness really does matter a lot. You can thin your blood with a lot of things. Uh, eating a great diet, high in vegetables, low saturated fat. That's really important to do that. Eating less carbohydrates. Um, but there are other things you can take. Either fish oil or quail oil are really good blood thinners. All of your herbs are really good blood thinners. They're mild platelet aggregation inhibitors, so they decrease clotting. Um, so it's uh, so all of your herbs, any of your herbs can do that. Um, but there are some herbs that are especially good. Um, Hawthorne is wonderful for the cardiovascular system. It and it enhances the heart functions, but it also helps dilate blood vessels. It's doing this because it, it is good for cells. It is inhibiting factors that stress cells in the heart and the cells that make up our vascular system. So that's how herbs work. They protect cells from various kinds of stress factors. So some herbs are a little better for certain cells in the body, but Hawthorne, you hear about it, that it it's a mild calming herb. It's good for GI functions. You know, there's this long list of things that it's been, that it's good for. And it's because herbs aren't specific like drugs. All herbs are protecting cells throughout the body. So even if you find an herb that maybe has a little bit more protective properties for whatever reason for certain kinds of cell, it's still protecting all the other cells in the body. So your herbs wow, are they doing great things because they're protecting your cells from free radicals and toxic substances and radiation and every variety of microbe that is constantly coming into your system. Mm. They're doing that without destroying normal flora. Yes, which is key. And you mentioned radiation there, something that's concerning to many of us now that we seem to be more and more inundated with various forms of, in, uh, of radiation. Uh, herbally, what is best to use there? Well, you know, there are different kinds of radiation. So we've got ionizing and non-ionizing radiation. So ionizing radiation is like X-rays, gamma rays. Uh, and we get a certain amount of that just from the sun and the solar system that our cells are being bombarded with, every living creature. But, but we kind of live with that. You know, we're built to resist that. Um, so ionizing radiation actually goes through, it's like a particle that goes through our body and hits molecules and breaks them apart. So it basically acts like a free radical, all right? Um, but then we have non-ionizing radiation, electromagnetic radiation that doesn't actually, it, it doesn't have particles that damage our molecules, but it does affect our energy. So, you know, think of your cells as little microscopic machines and they're running on electricity and they give off an electric wave and you put all the cells in the body together and there is 
a wave that we can measure. It's like we can measure, measure an EEG in the brain and an EKG in the heart. We're looking at that that aura that those cells are putting off. And you know, there's certain people that can sense that that do energy medicine. Um, you know, the Chinese have been looking at this for years. These meridians that you talk about in acupuncture are just the, the electrical energy your cells are giving off. And so when we have all this electrical energy, um, if you're really healthy, you're pretty resilient. So like I'm sitting a couple of feet from a computer right now, um, and it's not really affecting me. Well, when I was really stressed and my reserves, my reserves were really low, I couldn't do this for a very long time at all. You know, I was still having to work, but I was having to put the computer on the other side of the room and take a keyboard, a remote keyboard, um, just to work because I would feel horrible after an hour or two. So, yeah, all but we are getting a lot of it, and it seems like we're getting more and more every day. And it's a big experiment that we just know, you know, we started doing these things before anybody started going, hey, could that hurt us? And we just kept doing them. Yeah. So look after your field is your number one defense, basically. Yeah. I, I, and I couldn't agree more when I was very sick with mold. We moved to a place where we thought there was no mold. Unfortunately, there was. Um, and it was opposite phone towers. And I became unbelievably unwell within three weeks of moving there. I, I couldn't believe how sick I was. And um, and I had to wear EMF protective gear and, you know, all sorts to just try and take the stress away from my body. But now that I'm well, I mean, my modem is just right behind me because I like it for the connection for the podcast. I could not have sat here uh, three years ago. Uh, in in the old place, in that kind of proximity. And I think um, there's just so much to be said for rather than being terrified of everything that's out there, which is very easy to unfortunately fall down the rabbit hole of with how many people are trying to sell you on being terrified of everything, um, work on the magic of having a healthy field or the healthiest field you possibly can for where you're at. Um, because that goes a long way. Well, you know, it it just comes back to taking care of yourselves, and mm. that's what it's all about. But take care of yourself. Yeah, you know, I it's but so many things happen that are beyond our control. So I I left this big medical group when I just couldn't practice obstetrics anymore, and that was about forty seven, forty eight years old, um, and the only building available that I could open up a practice in was this old building. And so I did it because it was all that I could do. And turned out it was full of mold and I was there years and I had, and but, but everything, everything that happened, it was like, at first I was going, oh, why is this happening to me? But then I came around to going, okay, what am I supposed to be learning here? So I learned all about mold because of that exposure. So it's like each thing that I went through carried me a little bit further in my understanding. And it just brought me to this very different place that I am now. I agree. And while I'm sure you, like I, was a very reluctant learner at first, once you then 
learn, um, you realise that at least the gift is them being able to support others. And uh, and that's a pretty sweet gift. So there then becomes gratitude in some of our worst experiences. Mm. Well, Bill, I honestly feel like I could reboot and do another hour with you asking you <laughs> questions about all sorts of things. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on the show. Uh, I love the the this the clarity, the simplicity of the message. Um, but also the importance of it. Uh, it can't be understated just how important those those simple things are that we can work on. And connecting with nature more means connecting with herbal medicine and its magic more uh, as well. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.